0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Borough purchase at borough.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus
0: taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up?
0: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing there? It's David. It is the podcast time. We're trying to look at the world and make sense of it from an economic angle and the world is weird. How are you, my mate? Are you good?
2: I'm good. I'm very good. Let me tell you what happened to me last week. Tell me what happened to you last week. It was was Cheltenham week. You know, I'm are not in, into the horses. Not really. I'm not really. But you know, we know a lot of horsey kind of people.
0: We know a lot of people who gamble. That's who we know a oh, lot yeah, of people. Okay. I I horsey people are quite different to fellas who spend a lot of time in bookmakers.
2: Well, I I'm I'm referring to Pobb. Peter O'Brien. My cousin. Your cousin. Shout out to Pob. Shout out to Pob in Australia, whose first job was,
0: I'll tell you in a little minute.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's actually quite a good one. But he's manages that stud. He used remember. to manage two more, wasn't That's the big one. Old... yeah, but he's moved into a, another stud. Anyway, he sent over a whole lot of tips for Cheltenham. So I kind of went, yeah, why not? And I have a Paddy Power account. So I was kind of picking out the horses. By the way, should we be saying that somebody who works as an insider in the industry is sending over tips for Cheltenham? Oh, that's sure, that's done all the time. Is, is that what they do? Yeah, Okay, that's what they do. But, the, you know, Pob is a, maybe a 50% success rate you know that's quite good <laughs> but uh, i so happened to pick a lot of his horses and a lot of them came in which was fantastic so i was chuffed at myself good I'd, for you i was up about 180 quid and these are all on like five quid each way bets oh, i was absolutely going fantastic anyway so i was leaving the office and uh, went up to jump into the car We're clamped I was clamped.
0: All your winnings.
2: All no. my winnings. Oh, no. So my mood went from way up there, woohoo, down to, oh, Jesus.
0: Well, the, the funny thing about being clamped, that brings us nicely. And we're going to talk to Simon Cooper in a couple of minutes about, about the price of parking.
2: Okay. <laughs> exactly. There's always a link, Mike. There's
0: always a link. There's always a Speaking of the price of parking, do you know what arrived today in Dublin Port? What? The Vespa! Oh, did it! We've well, we now got paperwork to do, right? right. Because of the Brexit. we got yeah. all sorts of paperwork to do, right? So but, you
2: probably won't get it for another
0: month. Well, you remember you, you started with Bat Outta Hell last week? Yeah. Your man is Harley Davidson. <laughs> Next week, it's going to be Mac out of Hell on the Vespa. <laughs> <laughs> Quadrophenia. Exactly. Here we go. Ace Face. <laughs> yeah. Down in Brighton or Tremor. Anyway, so you're a good form apart from winning. Apart and- from
2: that. The highs and lows. The that's highs what and doing.
0: lows. You know, you win some, you lose some. You know, I just I don't get horse racing at all. Yeah. I really don't get it. But Paul, my cousin's first job, <laughs> I think he was talking to my mother at a certain stage right. when we were about nineteen, yeah, or twenty, and he was working in Coolmore Stud, and my mother was saying, "Now, Peter, what is, what exactly is it you do down there?" <laughs> expecting him to say, and he said. Uh, uh, I, I tickled the bollocks of horses.
2: <laughs> He's a horse fluffer.
0: He was a horse fluffer. That's exactly what he was. That's exactly what he was in the stud.
2: Yeah.
0: And given that every go is about 20,000 quid or something yeah, of those horses. Yeah, true. Yeah, it's my Important job, the horse fluffer. Yeah.
2: If you have. Did he dress up, I wonder?
0: Well, listen. <laughs> oh, you weirdo. If you have strange jobs that you'd like to tell us on, hit us up on Twitter, or my own account or John's account. Horse fluffing is pretty
2: good. That's a good one. That's it's a good, a good one. one. He was clearly good at it too.
0: He was very, very good at it. He's very good. I wonder where, I wonder is there a sort of a hierarchy of horse fluffers? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let us plow on and talk about millennials. And the reason I want to talk about millennials is because JM with us, mm. like all of his generation, are stuck in this crazy idea Of trying to find a house in this country. Now, John Collison was talking to us last week. You might have seen John Collison all over. You heard him here first on the Dave McWilliams podcast. And actually, the only place one of the Collison brothers has done a live interview in the world is our podcast, which is quite an achievement. And his companies went from thirty-five billion when we talked to him to ninety-two billion last week.
2: That's because he talked to us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But. Uh, Let me come back to the point. He was making the point and we've been making it that we need to fix the housing market because the housing market is the key to a decent lifestyle for the generation behind us. Mm. And if you look at what's happening right now, right, all JM told me, and this is a story that you will hear from lots and lots of people in their 30s, that right now the housing market is so dysfunctional in Ireland that you are demanded to go to sale agreed before you're allowed to see the house. It's bonkers. It's bonkers. It's
2: absolutely bonkers.
0: And I sent a little tweet last week about it and Twitter came back to me. Dozens, dozens of young people saying, I went to see a house, it's gone up by 50 grand from the asking price. I went to see a house, it's gone up by 60 grand. Even for the right to go and have a look at the thing, they're asking you to put down deposits, right?
2: Yeah. This is crazy. That's like that's like buying a pair of shoes online. And, and, you know, remember the shoes, the orthopedic shoes I bought the other day? Yeah,
0: they were particularly fancy.
2: But it's like buying a pair of shoes without trying them on or without even seeing the, the right colour of
0: it. Or the pair of shoes says they'll cost you 50 quid and when you click buy they cost you 80.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's
0: true. Now, let's just talk about because. Later on, we're going to talk to Simon Cooper about the future of cities. And what we're talking about in Ireland and everywhere in the Western world is largely an urban problem of urban prices. But my take on Ireland right now is that in the last year, the number of properties available to buy has fallen by 40%.
2: 40%? 40%.
0: Late 30s, early 40s, right? Why is this? Because at the start of the pandemic, the government said no viewing. So you can't view the house. So therefore, would-be sellers say, well, if there's no viewing, Mm. I won't put the house up for sale, particularly if they want to get a good price and move on, right? Mm. So what that means, John, is two things are happening in the Irish property market right now. One is rents are falling rapidly in Dublin, but prices are increasing rapidly. So as a rule of thumb, when rents are falling and prices are increasing, do not buy. Because rents falling means the underlying income for the asset that is property is falling. And when the underlying income is falling, the underlying price should fall too. Because obviously property yeah, has yeah, to have some relationship sense. to the price mm-hmm. price and income. So what is happening to all the people in their early 30s, and the reason the early 30s is important, I'm going to come back to the most unfortunate year to be born in, in Ireland, <laughs> is 1989, 1990. We'll go back to that in two seconds. I'll explain right. that. Right. I'll explain okay. that in a second. Right? Unfortunate timing. Those of you born in 19, let's say, 88, 89, 19, 191, 92. Unfortunate.
2: God. And I'll explain why. They're the years that I, I headed off to London. 88.
0: Which was fortunate for everybody around. <laughs> <laughs> but then I followed you, which is even unfortunate <laughs> for you. But let us come back to that, right? What I'd say to you is, if you are looking for a house now, stop, desist, continue to rent, do not go into the market, and here is why, to use that great millennial expression. The supply has contracted, so there is no second-hand houses coming on the market because the people who want to sell second-hand houses realize there's no viewing, so they won't get a good price. Mm. Okay, That's what their psychology is telling them. Construction has been in lockdown for the last eight months, so there's no new houses coming on. So supply has collapsed. However, demand is always there. And again, because people's incomes haven't been that badly affected in many sectors by COVID, there is demand there. And the banks are, believe it or not, trying to lend out to people with AAA covenants. right? Mm. So what you have is you have supply contracted and what is out there is shite. Let's call it shite, right? Mm. So you have no value for money a very few amounts of very bad property out there, right? So what happens, unfortunately, in psychology is, you know this idea that economists say, oh yeah, well, when the price goes up, the demand will go down. Yeah. That doesn't happen. What happens in a market that is captured, where you need to buy a house, or you want to buy a house or a flat, because either you're having a kid, or you're settling down, or it's time to move on. Yeah. When you hear prices rising, like JM's generation. It doesn't prompt them initially to withdraw their demand. It prompts them to panic in the opposite way. And they think, my God, if I don't get in now, prices will be 70 grand more next
2: yeah. year. So they bring so forward a, demand. It's a rerun of 2005, 2006. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So they bring forward demand. So what you're having is not only do you have existing demand, but you have brought forward demand, all coming at a time when supply is contracted which means prices go through the roof, which is why you get this bullshit. Like, you have to be sale agreed before you can see the effing house, right? Yeah. So the Dave McQueen's podcast advice to anybody now thinking of buying a house in that generation is desist. Step out of the market. I know it's going to be difficult. You need, the country needs a buyer's strike. It means a strike from buyers to say, we're not going to play this game. In two or three years, all the construction that was put on the back burner during COVID will be accelerated. So there'll be lots more new apartments, lots more new developments. Once viewings get back, there'll be lots more secondhand houses and apartments coming on the market. So you would be crazy to buy right now. Now is probably the worst point of value for basically value for money for your euro that we've seen ages. So what I would say to particularly the early 30s, stop leave the market, don't complete, don't sign, wait because supply is going to come back on in a year or two. And if you can, and rents are falling, so take advantage of falling rents to get a better place to rent for the next two or three years and don't go chasing this market upwards.
2: It's yet another reason to hurry up with the bleeding vaccines so we can get back to that point. Vaccines,
0: yeah. And I mean, what's very interesting about the pandemic was that you know, most people, I think myself included, thought, okay, this time last year, pandemic, unemployment's going to rise, places are going to shut, house prices will fall. Yeah. But they didn't because of this strange interaction with supply and the strange interaction of psychology amongst people. Because people gossip, people have WhatsApp groups, people are talking to each other saying, my God, that thing went, I put down an extra 50 grand, mm. it went, etc. So I think, chill out, don't buy, don't even look now because what's on the market is brutal. Yeah. It's not only a sellers market, it's a brutal sellers market and you don't want to be in that position.
2: So so what kind of stuff is out there? Like what what kind of houses are available if, well, if nothing has been built at the moment?
0: Again, again, think of it right. So Ireland's housing market is going through a massive transformation. People do not want always a three bedroom semi in the in the suburbs, mm. right? They want Two bedroom apartments, one bedroom apartments, studios, etc. However, the only thing that's on there, if you think about it logically, there's no new bills, nobody who doesn't have to sell is selling right now. So what is on is brutal quality. Okay. Mm. Now, my own thinking is it's only maybe probate houses. Older people have just died. Right. Yeah. Family want to sell because it's kind of like a windfall. And this is forcing, again, it's all about expectations. Younger people who are either in couples or single, the only thing they're being offered are older family homes built in the 1940s and 30s in areas that they don't want to live in. So suddenly you've got not only a mismatch in terms of price, you've mismatched in terms of quality, you've a mismatch in terms of expectations, you've a mismatch in terms of location. The whole dynamic points to screwing the young person. So stay the hell. The market's so dysfunctional, Get away from it. Stay out of it. Rent because rents are falling, and then chill out and wait until supply, at some stage, begins to change. And lots of people say, "Yeah, but we've been doing this for ages." But I'm just saying now's the worst time. The market is at its worst for buyers, so stay away. Good advice. But to come back to our issue about years of when you were born, John. Go on, tell us. So, 1989, 1990. What were you listening to, music-wise?
2: Ooh. Well, here's a little flavour from that era.
0: Mr. Gorbachev, teared
1: down this wall.
2: There's Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela, a free man taking his first steps into a new South Africa. The Iraqi army didn't
1: make a retreat at all. It was a headlong, panicky flight into disaster. We've all
2: been waiting for the fag and Cosette. I'm funny how I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you, I make you laugh. The nation holds its breath. Yes, we are. Oliver to the quarterfinals of the World
0: Cup. John, it, what's funny is the year you were born is unbelievably important to your subsequent economic challenges, right? If you're born around this period, that's in 1991, you're now 30, 31 at this stage, right? Yeah. You're born around 89, 90, you're about 30, 31 now. In Ireland, your average birth of their first child is 31. It's increased dramatically since the 1960s 70s, right? You tend to make these big decisions about buying houses or homes settling down, creating your own space. Yeah, that's the time. Yeah. Coincident with your first kid. This is typical, right? Mm. So what it means is that babies born in 1990 are coming in through no fault of their own to the worst housing market that we've experienced, right? The worst housing market in terms of value. Maybe 2006, 7, 8 was, was as bad, yeah. okay? Yeah. So our advice to those people there's lots more interesting things to do on a Saturday morning, together, than go looking at houses.
2: You mean like brunch
0: and other stuff? <laughs> so get out of the market, and again, think about our generation, born in the late '60s. We were born into a society that had no jobs and loads of houses. Mm. People were born in the late '80s are born into a, house, into a society, loads of jobs and no houses, and it's that's the way in which the year you were born profoundly affects your economic outlook, your social outlook, your political outlook, your sense of yourself, your sense of the society. And this is the Neil Howes idea, that generations think differently Yeah. because the background noise that affects the way in which they face society is differently. And the background noise for us was unemployment. The background noise for the late 80s people is ridiculously expensive housing. What I would suggest, in the same way as we said, okay, unemployment in Ireland, let's go somewhere.
2: Well, we, we had the opportunity to go somewhere.
0: Well, we stepped out of the market and mm. went elsewhere. What I would say to them is step out of the market now, rent for a while, prices, will, value will get better, and don't do something stupid in the next six months.
2: So what was the best year to be born in then?
0: That's a very good question, John. I would say... Our periods were quite good, late 60s, I'd say early 70s. Being born in Ireland, mm. you know, the last thing you, when I look at my parents, born in the 30s in Ireland. Yeah. Was a
2: bad, bad, bad time. Yeah, right? It was born
0: in the 1880s, 1890s in Ireland. You ended up fighting the First World War. Yeah. Okay. And of course, born in
2: famine years. But particularly born in bad. the 30s, like, like our parents, I know, like my mum headed off to London yeah. in the 50s, my uncle headed off to the States. You know, so that was their kind of well, stepping out of the market, as it were.
0: JM doesn't know this, but I could have been Canadian. My parents both had visas to Montreal, to go to to work in Montreal. Really? Uh, yeah, in the early, the late 1950s, early 1960s. And they were about to go, and then they changed their mind. They had, But they, they were all set to go. And we could have been... You could have been the Canadian. <laughs> I could have been the Canadian. Like a Quebecois, a French-speaking Canadian. Exactly.
2: <laughs> so while value in itself is a good argument for now. We've been speaking about on and off about 15-minute cities and yeah. a kind of a transformation yeah, 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 yeah. of urbanisation in Ireland and around the, around around the world. The world yeah. yeah, you know, Paris is is transforming to this 15-minute city idea well, I mean, and, and in Holland and stuff. So, you know. But well, I mean,
0: the pandemic has changed the whole thing. Online shopping, working yeah. from home, not commuting. i tell you what we'll do. Let's go and talk to Simon Cooper of the FT, who has a really fascinating and detailed take on the five big trends that we have to be aware of in urban living, urban economics, housing, transport, etc., and how that's going to impact on the city. And clearly, this will also impact on the price of city living. So let's go to Paris and talk to Simon. Simon Cooper, how are you doing? Very well. Good to speak to you. Yeah, it's great to, it's great to see you. I haven't seen you for ages. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll, we, we'll see each other. If not Dawky definitely economics by which stage even the Irish will have vaccinated everybody. I believe it's going really slowly in France as well. Yeah, they don't like vaccinating people. They think vaccines are very dangerous, etc. Much better just to catch COVID. <laughs> so that's what they're doing. That's the strategy, isn't it? Yes. No, but it, it is extraordinary. I mean, the vaccine hesitancy is... Amazingly high in France. Highest in the world, according to the World Trust. Highest in the world in France. The the country of Louis Pasteur.
2: But they they're also the country that had the huge outbreak of measles because they didn't fax, They didn't do the MMR. Really? Yeah, and they had a huge outbreak a few years ago, and quite a few cases. Measles kids is died. really dangerous. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, let us talk about what the what the French are doing is the cities. Let's start. I I want to talk about the future of cities. You wrote a piece in the FT. Fantastic piece. And you set it out in five headings. You said, the cities are going to change. The office is going to change. Neighbourhoods are going to change. Mobility is going to change. Shops, homes and gardens are all going to change. Take us through the changes you see coming in the city. Let's start with the office.
1: Well, there's been a lot of debate. Is the office dead? You know, it's been a year of urban debates and of urban change like never before in my lifetime. And the conclusion of is the office dead debate is no, it's not dead. People will still need to go into the office uh, maybe once, twice a week. So the office is going to shrink. You're going to have much, much less office space that you need. And you can imagine that if you're going to have a team meeting, say, once a week, you know, every Monday morning your team gets together, you're not going to keep an office going. You will meet in a restaurant. You'll, you know, you'll have brunch together. Or maybe once every two or three months, your team will go away to a country house for four or five days because you need to meet people, you need to exchange, but you don't need to do it every day, which uh, creates the misery of commuting, which is about the unhappiest thing you can do in a developed Western country. So we have way too much office space and that is going to shrink and a lot of that will end up being turned into housing.
0: And tell me, so the office space... Shrinks, turns into housing, office rents then fall, commercial property, all that sort of stuff gets impacted quite rapidly.
1: Yeah, and so there's going to be losers. I mean, this is not a time to be owning commercial property or to be a bank that's been lending to a commercial property owner. So, yeah, I mean, as they say in the trade, those people are going to take a haircut. But the winners are going to be people who could not afford to move into cities before because there wasn't enough housing. You know, Dublin is an example of that, but really all major cities in the Western world have become fantastically overpriced in the last 20 years. Now, once you start converting not just offices, but also
0: many shops into housing, then you reduce that shortage. I'm going to talk to you about shops in a minute because if, if this family is anything to go by, the amount of times the poor old dog is barking at all sorts of delivery blokes, usually blokes, uh, all times of the day or night. I come back to that. You're also right. I mean, again, you know, you spent your formative years in Holland. Holland seems to be a country that has twigged this urban dilemma before everybody else in terms of mobility, in terms of neighbourhoods, in terms of what the city is. Uh, Is it your Dutch upbringing that informs this sort of thinking?
1: I think so. I mean, I moved to Holland in 1976. So in the late 70s, early 80s, I lived in the country of the future because age eight or nine, I cycled to school alone every day, along protected bike paths, protected from cars. So did everybody in my class. You know, this is also the first country to legalize cannabis, to um, create gay marriage, to have euthanasia. So, you know, the Netherlands in those days invented the future of the world. And it was very successful with cities. Until the early 70s, there was quite a lot of um, uh, cars killing people in cities. And there were a lot of protests by parents. And so Dutch cities, which had begun to allow the car, and what happened in all these European cities from the 50s, you see it in Ireland as well, is the car, this new American thing, starts to take over. So until the 50s, quite a lot of people are cycling about. In Britain, bike sales peak in 1949. And then they start to fall. So we give our cities over to cars. The Dutch stopped that earliest in the early seventies. They only had 25 years of cars. You in Ireland, you've had, you know, probably 60 years of it. Yeah. So yeah. So bikes are going to take over because these cities, you know, if you think what Dublin was built for, it was built for people who went about on horses. That's so absolutely if, true, yeah. These streets that you have are good for horses, good for bicycles, not so good for a car. You know, so cars very quickly clog up a city. So we have to go back to the sort of 19th century or early 20th century city, which was a bicycling city.
0: So the car is almost the number one enemy, you would say, for urban reimagination.
1: Yeah, I was just walking around my neighborhood and just think of the space that is given over to cars. If you look outside your window now, you might see a whole road in which one or two cars are passing. So two people are using that immense space in front of your homes. And meanwhile, people are crammed inside these homes. So we've given our cities to cars, and we've even given our cities to unused cars. So parking spaces, often the car will sit there for 23 hours a day, maybe more if the owner doesn't use it every day. And it stop- a car stops people meeting each other because children can't go out. So people sit inside, you know, um, watching videos and you don't meet people in a, you know, in a parked car typically. What the point of the city, the reason we live in these overpriced, dirty, overcrowded spaces is to meet other people, you know, to fall in love or to exchange ideas or to have friends. And cars stop us actually meeting people. So we have to get rid of them. And especially the parked ones. If you need a car, if you need to get the other end of town,
0: well, you should take a kind of shared vehicle like an Uber, and that doesn't need to park hardly ever. Like I'm with you. I'm actually I'm I'm the man of the future. I don't even have a car. There you go. <laughs> I am a living embodiment of the man of the future. But I, I, am, getting, but I am getting a But I am getting Vespa. It's going to come. You are. It's coming. It's coming. I've I've just this. I've had my midlife crisis, Simon. I've bought a Vespa. I had one in my twenties, and I've gone on, and now we like, we'll talk about that. The Vespa is an ongoing issue here because of the bleeding Brexit it hasn't arrived. It's stuck somewhere <laughs> in the UK. But anyway. In the article, you talk about neighborhoods. Let's talk about neighborhoods. You quote James Jacobs, who's the sort of the uber thinker in this in, in in urban thinking. Tell me about the future of neighborhoods. So, neighborhoods are going to become much more
1: vibrant because in cities like Dublin or London, what had happened for fifty years in London for longer is people would leave their neighborhood in the morning, workers, and go into the centre of town, and then come back in the evening. So the neighborhood was largely empty during the day. Now, with much more working from home, which, as I say, is going to continue well beyond COVID, which is going to be the new normal, you're going to be in your neighborhood usually 24 hours a day. So if your home isn't big enough to work in, you'll rent a little bit of a co-working space on the high street, and uh, then you'll pop out to do the shopping. You know, groceries are probably the last shopping that people will keep doing on a regular basis. You will pick up your kids, you will meet a friend, maybe all those things together. You'll have coffee with a friend while picking up your kids and doing shopping. And so the neighbourhood becomes much more bustling, much more alive, which Jane Jacobs said is what you want. She says you want neighbourhoods to be as mixed use as possible, work and play and living, partly because you have eyes on the street then. It's much safer, especially for women who feel often very unsafe in urban environments, if you have a lot of people just who are walking down the street who see what's going on. What you don't want, what kind of causes crime, and the breakup of also any sense of community is these empty streets, whether it's the empty suburban street, you know, think of suburban Dallas, where you can walk around for an hour and not see anyone, or the empty street in an office neighbourhood, which is deserted after 6pm.
0: That's interesting. She uses the word, and I think it's fascinating in terms of urban development, architecture, what, you know, the future. She uses the word trust. What does she say about trust?
1: Yeah. And, you know, in the our era of populism, we've also realized the breakdown of trust in politics and media has uh, terrible consequences on our society. And Jane Jacobs says in a mixed-use neighborhood where you're there all day doing different things, just kind of, you know, noodling about going to the supermarket, yeah. you get to know the people in your neighborhood, if only by sight. Because you go into the supermarket and there's that lady who you've seen before and you go to the coffee shop and you pick up your kids at the school. So you're constantly meeting people in all sorts of different ways and often talking to them. And so that creates trust. Whereas Jacobs, uh, she says maybe tongue in cheek, there was a study by academics of a kind of gray area neighborhood in Detroit who were looking to find what the social structure of this neighborhood is. And they conclude there is no social structure. Nobody knows each other.
0: I can see it happening already. Because we live at in a suburb of Dublin called Dunleary, which is—I mean—you've been here, you've been around Docky Dunleary, Dunleary and yeah—and yeah. what we've, what I've seen is—and again, it's beside the sea, so when people can get out, obviously they're coming down here. But there's a palpable sense of vibrancy emerging. You can really feel it in the last year, you know, and that ain't going to change.
1: Yeah, and once you're only going around Dunleary most of the time, you don't have to travel—you know, fifteen miles somewhere. You do it on foot or you do it by bike. And that means that the neighborhood becomes uh, much safer for children. And on a bike, you can meet people, actually. You, you wave at somebody who's passing. You stop for a little matter. So it's a much more um, social device. Also, of course, it's less dirty. And you're constantly exercising. You don't even realize it, but you're exercising. So that will be uh, the neighborhood way of life. It will be like living in a village in the middle of or attached to a great city.
0: This, I mean, this, this sort of future, I mean, I, I again, as, as, as I said, I can see it. I kind of felt it my first time or first times in Amsterdam, that sense of freedom. You rent a bike, you mooch around. There were lots and lots of Dutch people on the canal, sitting out, having chats. There was bars, there was restaurants. And also, also, now we have with online shopping, a change in what the street is going to look like. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, so online shopping... When you don't go to the shop, but the shop comes to you, I mean, it's much greener because instead of 50 people driving to the supermarket, you have one supermarket van servicing those 50 houses. And then you have the issue of, uh, you know, we see it now all the time. Now there's so many deliveries. You have these double parked vans everywhere because there's not enough parking spaces. So they clog up the road, you know, belching out petrol while they deliver your parcel. But then you're not there. So they have to come back, you know, two hours later. And so we need to make a city that's kind of safe for delivery. So every home is going to have a, not just a letterbox, but a parcel box so that it doesn't matter that you're not there, they'll leave that they can leave this parcel or it will be on the street. There'll be a kind of shared parcel delivery box on the pavement near your house, which you share with 10 or so other houses. And so uh, delivering becomes much more efficient. And then also the remaining parking spaces, because we're going to get rid of most car parking spaces. Those will be for delivery back vans and they can pay for it as well. Because right now what Amazon does is it it doesn't pay the city anything. It's not paying Dublin anything typically when they deliver your parcel because they're just double parking sure. and running into your house and they're not paying for the space they use.
0: Okay, so, and of course, then people can move in because what, what I've noticed is, you know, the the main street here, and again, I'm using Dunleary, but everybody can imagine their own little neighbourhood wherever you're listening to, to this podcast, you can imagine, you know, has had an obsession with having shops on the main street, as opposed to people living on the main street, and of course that amplifies this sense of emptiness after six o'clock. Amplifies the sense of just one unique view. Do you think that cities will have to encourage? because at the moment it's quite hard to change from retail to residential planning-wise in Ireland. Do you think this is going to have to something that's going to, have to accelerate very quickly because people are going to have to live in these shops? Once that once were shops could now become apartments.
1: Yeah. I mean, some of them will become apartments. Some of them on your local high street will become co-working spaces because, you know, even if you can work from home, some of the time you want to go out and see other people and uh, the kids come home and then it's impossible to work. So you'll rent a co-working space occasionally. And you also want a life on the street still. If everything is an apartment or a coffee shop, because coffee shops will thrive in this new world. Uh, So you need coffee shops and co-working spaces to create life in the neighborhood. But we do have too many shops because if you look at your local high street, it's left over from the pre-internet era. Of course, until 1995, you did have to go out to buy everything. And now you don't anymore. The the high street is already shrinking. But what's going to shrink even more are shops in the wrong places. You know, the, the one little shop on the roundabout that nobody can quite see what the point of it is that shop is going to die. Shopping malls are dying. Shopping malls out of town are going to become housing. Uh, some of them would work very well as old people's housing. And then little bits of uh, the food court will survive, will become better. And you might even, if it's really good, you might even want to go out there for dinner with, you know, your family. So it will be a mix, mix of, um, of eating and living.
0: And just before we close on, you've also touched on homes and gardens. Again, Dublin is a city with, such an absence of gardens, parks, and particularly small gardens and parks. Uh, You know, we've got one huge thing called Phoenix Park, but it's a big park, just one. We have very few small ones and very, very few public gardens in comparison to other cities. What do you think the home is going to look like and and the sort of the, the amenity structure of gardens and cities? I think what you want
1: is a little, a park doesn't have to be big. It just needs to be near you. And it needs to be so near you that a child can go out alone. So I grew up in the Netherlands with autonomy because I could get on my bike. And, you know, my parents didn't know where I was. I was going around all the time from primary school age. And nowadays, of course, we as parents, when your kids are under 12 or so, you're completely attached to them because you can't let them go anywhere because they might get hit by a car. So what you want is a, you want to turn the parking space on your doorstep, the two parking spaces into a little mini park you know, with a swing or a slide or a little football goal. And then your kid and all the other kids in the neighborhood can go out there and meet each other and play with each other without having to cross the road. So you're going to get those green spaces. Also communal gardens. You know, in Dublin, you do have a lot because you all live in homes, you know, which is a problem in itself because it creates sport. But at least you have gardens. But in um, Spain, two-thirds of people live in apartments. They don't have gardens. Gardens are great for mental health. They're also great for meeting other people. So in Barcelona, they're creating rooftop gardens where everyone on your, in your apartment building shares this garden. You can go up and uh, create social networks, often for people who don't have them at all. So that's going to become much more common. I think the home is going to, you know, in the big enough homes, there's going to be an office that's going to be built in, and the kind of 19th century parlor, etc. Has obviously died over time and those spaces will become offices for people who live big enough. I think the home might develop to have a soap sanitizer as a kind of standard fitting when you walk in. You walk in and before you shake hands or kiss, you do a little soap up because COVID is going to become endemic. You know it's not going to disappear. It's going to become less deadly because we'll be vaccinated. And also we've learned this winter we can get rid of flus just by washing our hands and not you know touching people yeah, all the yeah. time when not necessary. so there'll be that soap sanitizer and we also will have Balconies is a kind of essential feature of the house, says David DeJay, because nobody ever again wants to contemplate a period when they can't actually be outside with some people experienced in
0: lockdown. Simon, just before we go, who's going to be first out of the blocks with this type of city? What countries are leading the charge here?
1: Well, the countries are already sort of there. The cities are Amsterdam and Copenhagen. Those are really the models for the city that I'm describing. Uh, Paris is moving there very, very quickly. So they've been laying bike lanes like mad all over the city in the last year. They're building little, they're going to start creating little urban forests because you want less concrete, especially with more heat waves. So Paris is going to turn the forecourt of the town hall into a, um, a little urban forest. So all cities are moving very, very fast. You know, New York is now routinely opening school playgrounds at all hours. Anyone can, you know, come there at any time and hang out. So this is a kind of global move. It doesn't seem to me that Dublin is at the forefront of it.
0: No, I think that was a very, very tactful and tasteful way of telling us, no, we're not. Because we have, I think it's very, a serious, serious lobby that wants to remain building homes, as we have done for years. It's a developer lobby. It's It's also a way of thinking. We haven't really grasped this just yet. Can I just say one thing about Dublin before you push me away? Dublin people think they need cars
1: which I understand what they really need is electric bikes an electric bike you can do 15 miles an hour you know if you're not fit or if you're going up a hill you just turn on the motor it only costs about 800 euros so it's much much cheaper than running a car and for most trips within Dublin you know how often do you go more than eight miles well that's 30 minutes on an electric bike and so that would make the city so much more habitable, make everybody much healthier. And it would give you all a massive pay rise because instead of spending 30,000 euros on a
0: car, you're spending 800 on an e-bike. We will conclude there. That is a, a, an upsell for bike. No, listen, time that was excellent. Listen, thank you so much. Cheers, guys.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: Do you know what, Mac? I think some of the ideas that Simon was talking about there and some of the other ideas we discussed about 15-minute cities in previous podcasts, there's an element of bollocks to it. Oh, listen to you, car man! No, I'm I'm anti-car as as well, not quite listen. as bad as you and your Vespa and your listen. And am your I walking? Bus, am I walking? And your bus pass?
0: I know. Well, listen, I'll be for my Zimmer frame as
2: well. <laughs> no, but there's something just a little bit middle class utopian about all of this. You know, look at it this way. Yeah, it's, no, I, hear I love you. the I hear idea you. I hear you. of I love the idea of a 15 minute city. You know, having a strong community where you stroll down the street on your bike and you grab your coffee and you say hi to a neighbor called Fred and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you go to work that is within 15 minutes. That's not possible for many people. Uh, Many people's work is over the other side of the city. And they're living on this side of the city because this is what they can afford.
0: No, I understand. I understand. So it's
2: not possible for most people.
0: Well, I think with remote working, most people in the Western world live and work in services cities, cities where our work is services, kind of desk bound work. And I'm not sure it's impossible to conceive of a future where that idea of commuting for 50 miles or 40 miles Mm. is regarded as kind of ridiculous, right? If you have The infrastructure, the broadband infrastructure, the working from home infrastructure. I think if we've learned anything from the pandemic is that we suffered from a collective, a really collective absence of imagination in the way we lived.
2: I get that. Over the last while. I do get that. I think
0: that Simon's saying, you know, the car lobby is huge in terms of its influence on urban transport and planning and in... Every country, therefore, regional transport and planning. Mm. So we have based our societies around a piece of metal with wheels in it. And that has completely and utterly jaundiced what's possible. Well, you know, and I take your point. You, look, His his point is like, neighbourhoods will become much more significant as opposed to dormitory towns, sure. right? And those neighbourhoods will have their own organic way of developing. I, I think he's right. I think... What we're talking about is if you look at the history of urbanism, if you go back to the Greeks, John, ooh, go let's back go, to the Greeks. The go. Greeks started with this idea the center of the city is the agora, the marketplace, the place where people come to buy and sell, sure. not just stuff, buy and sell ideas, mm. buy and sell notions, politics as well, right? And then you get the monetization of the urban world. And cities have always had this layered, cosmopolitan, liberating, liberated feel to them. It is only in the latter part of the 20th century that we imposed on city the will of the car. And that profoundly changed the way cities are. Yeah. Boy. So now we can reverse that. Like we're going back and we're talking about, remember talking about Florence, John. Indeed. You know? Like if you look at medieval Florence, right, you had a system of artisans and guilds and workers and immigrants and people coming and going, but the city itself was the hub. Now I do I, I think he's right. I think it's going to change. Okay.
2: I, I I get all that. However, all our cities were designed and built in an era before the internet. Yes. So now you're you're talking about and rightly so we have a new way of working vis-a-vis we're working from home remotely. Yep. And the only way we can do that is because we're all connected. Yes. Via the internet. And that's great. And that works now. But the city itself was designed way before this. So it's a bit like, uh, as Simon said there, Dublin was built for the horse. Yeah. And we've gradually changed that. But we still have those narrow little... Streets. Windy streets. should not have
0: any cars on them.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And they should become, I mean... They should become cities, become entertainment, leisure, places to hang out, these sort of places, plus places to live. Like, think about shops, right? Mm. Think about how much money we are spending extra in shops to pay the rent. I come back to land all the time. You just were going to buy a hard drive. Give me the numbers.
2: Yeah, for a two terabyte hard drive, it was a shade under 500 quid.
0: In Curry's and PC World in, here. Yeah. In the shop, the retail in, price.
2: Yeah. And how much is it on Amazon? It was, uh, with conversion and stuff, it was about 250 So pretty much half price. Yeah.
0: So shops are over. And the reason it's half price in Curry's and PC World, mm. you got to pay rent. Yeah. Huge amount of rent. And they put up their own markup. Now, think about that all around in every shop, Right. Most people will think, remember we did a thing on shopping a while ago, the shops will be just like almost like websites. There'll be like a web page. Yeah, you'll yeah. go in and like say brochure. I would like that. Yeah, mm. I would like that. And it's going to be an experience and all that sort of stuff. Mm, mm. But my sense is that we can be really optimistic about the future of cities because what Simon Cooper has suggested is, I think, very attractive. Jane Jacobs, who is the sort yeah. of Dion of urban thinking, her idea of eyes on the street was really fascinating for me. In the last two weeks, my daughter, my wife, lots of women I've spoken to have been angry and scared about their safety.
2: My girls too.
0: And if you talk to any woman, they will always tell you they will walk down the street with people on them. They will always avoid the street, which is empty and Mm. dark. If we create living cities for 24-hour streets that different people are on the street at different times, these are much safer places. What terrifies women is the dark place where there's nobody around, where they're much, much more dangerous. The whole city that we have built around the car is a dangerous city. Because it's a city that closes. It's certain areas closed down. That's not alive. The people don't live in. it. People commute and they leave at six o'clock. Then the whole vibe of the city changes. Dublin's like that. You know, the whole vibe yeah. changes at night. It's a totally different place. Imagine that city with what Jane Jacobs said, eyes on the street. So I'm protecting you. You're protecting me. Because we're all there together, mm. it's a much safer place. As you remind
2: me of, of LA, I spent quite a while in LA and... Talking about a, a city that's designed for the car. And there's dark streets. There's stu- and there's empty but zones. People don't walk the street full stop. Because if you're going out to get a pint of milk, you drive, you know. And there's, you know, there's there's no alternative.
0: Yeah, you drive and there's no public transport. But the point mm. is, there's no people in the street. Actually, I'll tell you a story about it, You know, Cahal Cochlin of Micro Disney, yes, the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a great song called only losers get the bus and it was Cochrane was in la and he was waiting at a bus stop right yeah. and he was obviously the only white person because it's only poor people get the bus yeah. in america yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was waiting at the bus stop looking very conspicuously white and a kind of a jerk freaking jock arrives up rolls down the window yeah, yeah. or no, buzzes down the window yeah, yeah. of his corvette and just says Only losers get the bus and then a word off.
2: (laughs) And he wrote a song about it.
0: He wrote a song about it. But living cities are safe cities, are vibrant cities, and they are our future.
2: I'm not stupid. I'm a man.